the people who were so sure that deficits drive interest rates up or that QE is inflationary. I mean, those people that asserted those things with real fervor, I think, are demonstrably wrong. Hello there from the UK. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by The Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview with economist Stephanie Kelton to discuss modern monetary theory. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. So first up, we have BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. And with BlockFi, you can open up an interest account and earn money on your Bitcoin. I'm a customer. I love getting my interest every month. And also with BlockFi, using your Bitcoin as collateral, you can take out a USD loan. You can also fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet. And with the BlockFi mobile app, you can now access all BlockFi services direct from your mobile phone. If you're interested in checking out BlockFi, I do recommend you do your own research and then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Okay, next up, let's talk about Kraken and why they are the best place to buy Bitcoin. Firstly, their world-class security makes them the most trusted cryptocurrency exchange on the market. No filthy hacker is going to get their hands on your Bitcoin via Kraken. And with their 24-7, 365 customer support, they can help you out with any issues you have, whoever you are and wherever you are. They have the most comprehensive suite of trading tools available for buying Bitcoin at Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start buying and selling Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile-first app. So wherever you are, if you want to buy some Bitcoin, you can do that on the go. With margin trading, futures, and their OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app, which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Okay, so on to today's show, and I am joined by economist and author and MMT proponent Stephanie Kelton. She is the Professor of Economics and Public Policy at Stony Brook University and was a one-time advisor to Bernie Sanders. Now, this show is certainly going to trigger a few people, but I was really glad Stephanie came on the show, and I will ask, please, if you don't agree with a lot of what she says, which I don't, please just show a little bit of respect online. Let's not go and completely attack her. MMT was something I wanted to discuss. I wanted to find out a bit more about as it's being pushed around so much, so... I was uh, very glad that Stephanie came on to discuss it, especially as she's written a book about it. It's called The Deficit Myth. And I've had a growing interest in economics since discovering Bitcoin. Not historically something I've cared too much about. I'm more of a creative person. But, you know, it's discovering Bitcoin, you get into economics. And I've certainly been drawn into the world of Austrian economics and, and the theories which people like Stefan Levera talk about which just makes sense to me. And so in this world of central banks and money printing at these unprecedented levels, I am naturally worried, like other Bitcoiners, about the repercussions. But there is this growing school of thought, which is gaining in popularity, called modern monetary theory. And I did read Stephanie's book, The Deficit Myth. And whilst I disagreed with most of it, I did have questions and I did want to talk to her about it. I did want to get behind this idea and why people are such fans of it. So, yes, it is very easy just to dismiss MMT and get out there and just start fighting people about it. I mean, I've largely dismissed it myself, but I also recognize we live in a world of governments and central banks. So I want to understand the ideas behind this. And I mentioned to Joe Wazenthal, I pinged him on Twitter and said I wanted to get behind this subject and he recommended talking to Stephanie. And so she agreed to come on the show. Now, listen, my primary issue with MMT in my simple moron mind is that I think it's an unfair system. We know inflation is theft and MMT proponents claim that you can print 
almost as much money as you like as long as you keep inflation under control. But inflation itself, we know, is theft. My biggest issue, though, is with the incentive structures because money printing is controlled by people who can use it and abuse it. And that's something I put to Stephanie. But we do live in a world of governments and central banks and they aren't going away right now. And we've got this weird pandemic, which is having a massive impact on GDP. I think I just saw a 34% drop in the US, 24% in the UK. We know the only way out of this for the government is they're going to continue to print. So if this theory is out there, if it exists, I want to know a little bit more about it. I want to understand why people support it and what the implications are for everyone else. Now, a couple of times in this, I did fill out my depth. As uh, many of you know, I'm not really an economist and I'm not sure if, you know, do you know what? I'm not sure if I was out of my depth. I wasn't confident enough in my argument. So I will be very interested in feedback on this. Please do reach out to me. Tell me what you think I got right, what I got wrong. You can reach me on hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I look forward to hearing from you on that. Also, just on Defiance, got a really great show on Defiance that came out this week. I've got Zuby on. We talked about the hijacking of Black Lives Matters. Also, I've got a really cool show starting next week. It's a four-parter. It's about the rock band, The Ghost Inside. They're actually a metalcore band. They had this accident in 2015, four-year recovery, and they've allowed me to tell the story. So that starts next week. You can find that all at defiance.news. Outside of that, I love you all. Have a great weekend, and I will see you soon. Hi, Stephanie. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. You came under recommendation from Joe from Bloomberg. From Joe, yeah, Weisenthal. He's a he's a good guy. Yeah. Yep. He's been on the show. Okay, so let's get into this. This is gonna be a subject which will be controversial in the Bitcoin world because most Bitcoiners tend to be uh, fans of Austrian economics and uh, not particularly fans of MMT. Yet we we are in a world of MMT. It's not something I fully understand. Um, I'm not gonna sit and defend Austrian economics uh, to a very deep level because I'm I'm not an expert, but I am going to ask questions around the kind of ideas or things I've heard and and I've also I've listened to the majority of your book this week whilst uh, on my peloton well this week and last week and I definitely have questions lots of things I'd like to go through with you but just before we go into it just so people are listening because not everyone will know you can you just give people a bit of your background like who you are, what you do, and then talk about why you wrote this book, because I think that would be a good setup for us. Sure. Well, I'm an economist. I've been teaching economics at the university level for 20 years. I spent 17 years at the University of Missouri in Kansas City, and now I'm at Stony Brook University, which is on Long Island in the state of New York. I took a little bit of time away from uh, academia. I took a leave of absence and I went to work in the U.S. Senate and I served as the chief economist for the Democrats in the Senate for a period of time um, in 2015 and part of 2016. I was an advisor to the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign. I just recently wrote a book. You asked, why did I write the book? You know, I've been kind of working in a sort of space for a long period of time. And this is what has become known as MMT. And, you know, I just wanted to, I always try out Twitter. Twitter's like the place where I go to test drive um, the way that I like to say things. You know, I think communication is really key and you can get that instant feedback on Twitter. If you found a way to, to phrase something that really resonates and helps people see things more clearly, it's like, you know, you immediately know you've kind of hit a gold mine with uh, a certain phrase or, or whatever. So I don't know. I, I think that 
I feel like in many ways I um, wanted to communicate with the broader public. I, you know, as an academic, you write research papers and you communicate with a certain audience with your scholarship. But there's this broader public out there who's so misinformed, I think, about a lot of issues that are really important. And I wanted to give them an entry point into the kind of work that I and other MMT economists do that would be you know, really just accessible. Somebody could pick up this book with no prior training in economics. In fact, it's probably better if you don't have it because there's less unlearning that you have to do. Um, no fancy mathematical equations to get in the way, scare readers off. And so I, I just wanted to, to see if I could write a book that would help empower people to take place, you know, to take part in the discourse around public policy and a lot of the issues. And kind of protect them from the myths and misunderstandings that they're bombarded with by media and politicians and so forth. And do you get stuck in some of the Twitter warfare at all? I don't. I mean, I really don't think I do. Um, you know, I've been on this kind of hell site for a long time. And like I said, I, I find it useful in a lot of ways there are obviously flamethrowers and, you know, people who get very aggressive. And I've just always tried to avoid engaging with people like that. I'm happy to engage in debate with, you know, honestly interested people, you know, who are treating the ideas, you know, fairly. They have genuine questions. I want to try to provide answers and so forth. But now there's a, obviously, you know, a lot of like for the same reason that one should never read the comments section of The New York Times you know, there are just certain things you don't live in your mentions or, you know, life is probably going to be pretty unhappy. Well, I'm going to treat this fairly. I've, I want to listen. I've got questions. I do think maybe when this goes live, you might want to ignore your Twitter for a couple of days. There might be some Bitcoiners who are disagreeing with you, but I, I do want to listen. And because I found the book fascinating. Actually, I've got a question about the book because I didn't actually check it. And I think I, I think you did. Did you narrate it yourself? I did. Yes. Yeah. So I've got an interesting question for you. So I have this other podcast where I do these uh, mini documentaries. And this very strange thing happened whereby I recorded it, uh, my very first long form episode, which is about 35 minutes. And it was, it was about Steve Mnuchin. And we had to make some changes. And when we went back to record it, my voice sounded entirely different. So we ended up having to re-record the whole thing again. Now, I don't imagine you narrated this all in one session, right? Well, don't we all think that our voice doesn't really sound, when we hear ourselves, we say, oh, that's not me. That's not what I sound like. Um, but you're saying it actually distorted the way that you really do sound. No, two different times of the day. So Because the days were separate. When you put them together, it sounded just slightly different. It was obviously, really? yeah. yeah. And so interestingly, when I was listening to your book, there was one point I noticed it happen, which is something I wouldn't ever have noticed. But that's um, it's a hell of an undertaking to, to, to narrate a whole book. It was very strange. I was reluctant to do it, but I had um, actually, while I was in Australia, the first part of the year, I was there for two weeks uh, in January of this year. And I did a lot of media while I was there. One of the things I did was a podcast a radio interview with a blind host. And so he, you know, he digests everything just about audio through audio. And he said, you know, who's going to who's going to read your book? And I said, well, I don't know. There's been no decision. He said, oh, you have to do it. 
And I said, no, no, no. I was thinking, you know, there needs to be some great reader with a great voice and something. And he said, no, I really encourage you to read your own book. And it was really because that kind of impacted me and persuaded me to do it. But I'll tell you, it's a weird experience because you don't do it all in one day. I mean, you, you can't. I can't imagine anybody who could. Maybe somebody could. I couldn't. They carved out three days. And I, you know, was in this little room in uh, the publishing house, has the, the little studio. And you sit in a tiny little room and they give you tea and honey. There's a banana on the table. There's a microphone in front of you. And then there's a glass window and you can see the tech person on the other side. And so you have basically a Kindle-like version of the book, and the tech person has a version of the book. And so they're following along as you read, and you mess up, and you mess up, and you mess up, and you read words that aren't there, and then he catches it, and you have to go back. But we also found, you know, it hadn't gone to print yet, which was great, because we found a lot of little typos and that sort of thing. The other thing that happened is that you... Find out how much noise your body makes, just like naturally. So I had all of this gurgling happening through the whole thing. And he would hit the button and he speaks, you know, through the system and he goes stomach and then he tells you where to start. And it was just like three solid days of him telling me my stomach was making these gurgling sounds and we had to go back and repeat and repeat. So it was, it was, but I'm glad I did it, you know, in the end. I'm I'm glad I spent the time to record it because I think a lot of people have told me how much they appreciated having the author narrate the book. But well, three days is impressive because uh, I'm going by memory. Is it about twelve hours long? We didn't go twelve, but we definitely went beyond eight all three days. Yeah, because if I if I have to do say thirty minutes of narration. I do it with my engineer. Um, he's remote, but I do it with him there on Zoom. It takes usually at least two hours, and it's intense. And at the end of that two hours, I am wiped out. So the fact that you did perhaps eight hours across three days is is pretty intense. Yeah, I wonder where you noticed the change in my um, the sound of my voice or whatever, because I did go through the entire book. And then at the very end, when I was so relieved to hit the last word on the last page... He said they want us to come back and record maybe the first four pages of the introduction again it's, because you change, right? Yeah. You you get into a groove and those first four pages, you've never done it before. And so there's probably some the sound of hesitation and you're less comfortable. And then by the time you get to the end, so I had to suck it up and go back and read the first few pages again or something. I wonder if I if think maybe it's that because you've got huh. that first kind of like half hour chapter the kind of intro and i think i think it would have been there and it's one of those things i've only noticed now since i've started doing my own narrations for podcasts like i've noticed how often everybody says you know which i didn't know, notice before now i can't unhear it so anyway that that was very very interesting to hear okay so listen it's a very interesting book like i said i've, I've got a lot of questions and I've got a lot of questions because it contradicts a lot of the things that I hear from certain Austrian economics that I've interviewed as part of trying to understand Bitcoin and their view on, on the economy. But I think a good starting point here is if you were to explain, because some of the people won't listen, listening won't actually know what this is, but what is modern monetary theory? 
And also, like, where does it differ from, say, Keynesian theory? Because I think I notice, like, Paul Krugman, he's not a fan of modern monetary theory, but he is a Keynesian, right? Okay. So the first part of the que- the first part of your question is like the hard one, right? What is modern monetary yes. theory? Because the the truthful answer, the full answer is that it's the name that's been given to this body of scholarship that has been produced over the course of two and a half decades from what originally were a handful of economists that's grown some over time. But it's a rich scholarship and it's a branch of macroeconomic theory. It's if you like a school of thought. So, you know, everybody listening to your show is uh, very familiar with the Austrian school of thought and probably knows the Keynesian school of thought. You know that there is a Marxist school of thought. Maybe you know that there's post-Keynesian and institutionalist and I could go on. So you have in macro, you know, this menu of options to, to think about a framework for analyzing the macroeconomy. And MMT has entered the fray and become one of a number of contending approaches to macroeconomic theory. So what makes MMT different from some of the others? Well, the starting point for us, I think, is recognizing that the currency itself, the, in our case, the U.S. dollar, is a simple public monopoly, that the government is the issuer of the currency, and the rest of us, I say in the book, are just users of currency. And that distinction is important, because if you get that distinction right, then you can start to understand why the government can operate its budget in ways that are very different from the rules that apply to a household, to a private business, to state and local governments. They can behave in ways that look irresponsible and even unsustainable to us. But if you begin to understand the nature of the currency, the monetary system, then you can start to understand why it is it isn't inherently unsustainable for the government to spend more than it takes in every year for the government to issue bonds. And we call that borrowing and we refer to it as debt. And we think somehow that's problematic. But, you know, MMT, I think, provides a lens that helps us to better understand the mechanics, the monetary operations, the monetary system, so that we don't draw wrong conclusions about the federal government's budget and finances and liken them to those of a household private business. Okay. So I watched uh, Peter Schiff, you know, Peter Schiff, the gold bug. I watched him on Joe Rogan. And he said, the government is broke. The US government is broke. And I've also often heard about this debt ceiling that it seems to exist, this scary debt ceiling that then gets, seems to get raised. It's almost like they raise the uh, the level of the house. So can you explain why why the debt ceiling exists and, and, and then why it's not necessary? And you also don't agree that the government is broke, right? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, I don't agree that the government is broke. I mean, I think you know, all evidence to the contrary, sort of, you know, if you if if we were broke, we wouldn't have Congress spinning out multi trillion dollar spending bills, you know, left and right, we're on the cusp of another one here, you know, maybe any minute, any day, any week, that is not the kind of thing that you do when you are penniless, and, you know, incapable of spending. So no, uh, I don't think that's correct. The debt ceiling is like this anachronistic thing. It is a way that it's, first of all, it's important to say it's a self-imposed constraint. It's something that uh, exists because Congress put it there. 
it's something that can go away if Congress removes it. Currently, the U.S. has been operating without the debt ceiling in place. So right now, it is not there. Okay, Congress made it go away. They may one day bring it back. I hope they won't. But if they do, it's a way of saying, I want to check myself periodically. So, you know, it. here's why it doesn't make sense. Because when Congress authorizes legislation, like let's take for an example, the $2.2 trillion CARES Act, which Congress passed in response to the coronavirus and the economic meltdown, they said, okay, the House, the Senate, everybody came together, $2.2 trillion, so-called in, in this CARES Act. Um that is Congress making a commitment, right? That's Congress saying we're going to spend $2.2 trillion. Now, if something happened in the interim and the debt ceiling was in place and a point was reached where you were going to butt up against the debt ceiling, that is Congress saying, I want a second chance to think about the prior commitments I've made. You've already authorized the spending. So now it's like coming in after the fact and saying, well, I don't know if I want the Fed to clear those payments. I know I committed to making them, but I'm not sure I want to go forward. So it's it's a pretty counterproductive thing to do. We're one of the only countries in the world that operates with a thing like this in place. And like I said, we don't it's not there now. Mm -hmm. in, in the UK, we've had um, ever since the 2008 crisis, especially under the conservative government, we've had what was known as like austerity, which was very unpopular. Um, it seemed to be a number of programs that affected the the poorest in society worse. We had this thing called this uh, bedroom tax, whereby if you had a social property and it had two bedrooms and you were only using one, you were taxed on it to try and encourage people to either use that room or, or, or move out. And a lot of very, very tough programs, but the idea was to bring down our deficit here. What I found quite interesting in your book is that you talked about a deficit being a good thing. So can you talk me through that? Yeah. So the way I like to say it is that every deficit is good for someone. Okay. Every deficit is good. So the question okay. for me and then is, well, for whom and for what? Right. So the deficit is nothing more than the difference between two numbers. That's what it is, right? We measure it every year mm -hmm. and we say, okay, one number is how many, in your case, British pounds the government spends into the economy. And the other number is how many British pounds is the government subtracting out of the economy, mainly by taxing people. Okay, so it's the difference between those numbers. If the government adds more dollars in, spends more dollars into the economy, then it subtracts away we label it a deficit. We say the government has engaged in running a fiscal deficit and people recoil. They say, oh my God, why are they mismanaging their finances? Why can't they live within their means? Blah, blah, blah. We rail against the deficit. What we forget to do, what we fail to, to recognize is that if they put 100 in and they only take 90 back out, somebody gets 10, right? The government's deficit is always and everywhere matched by a financial surplus in some other part of the economy. It has to be that way. Okay, this is by the rules of accounting. Yep. So their deficit, the thing we call the deficit, is also a surplus. We just don't refer to it from our perspective, our vantage point, what's happening to our balance sheets. We only talk about it with respect to what's happening to the government's balance sheet. Well, that's not interesting. I don't care what number falls out of the budget box every year. I care about the health of the real economy. I care about inflation. I care about unemployment. I care about whether society's needs are being met. I don't care about the number that falls out of the budget box. So I just feel like, you know, 
a lot of the problem we have is just a communications problem. It's the words we've chosen to use to describe what's actually happening. Calling it a deficit creates, you know, unnecessary anxiety because people immediately say, wait, deficits are bad, right? If I turn on the TV and I see my um, football team down by, you know, two goals and I say, oh, you know, if Arsenal's going to pull this off, they're going to have to overcome a two point deficit against Liverpool. Well, the deficit they is won't. bad. They won't, right? they won't come back. <laughs> not, not against Liverpool. I mean, not against Liverpool. Well, but you know what I'm saying. I, I mean, these the words we use are really problematic. And the same thing happens when we describe the government borrowing. You know, we say the government is borrowing money to fund the deficit or finance the deficit. And then we call the resulting government bonds the debt. And then we go right into, you know, your share of the debt and oh, debt. And it just triggers people, you know? I'm still on your football analogy because okay. firstly, firstly, you called it football and not soccer, which is amazing. You recognize I lived in England, and you recognize Liverpool are the best team, which is also excellent. So I'm just going to stick with that. I'm always going to be a fan of yours for that. Yeah, I mean Arsenal are terrible. How did you know that Liverpool are the best? Listen, I lived in England for a little while, and the only football match that I ever attended, like saw live, was an Arsenal game, and. Uh, I won't tell you who won because I don't remember. <laughs> when when was this? How long ago? Ninety six. Wow, ninety six. Would that ninety six? So you would probably went to Arsenal when they were at Highbury, the old ground, because they've got a new, big new ground. Like, was oh. it a really tight ground? I mean, I, all I remember is that you couldn't have your beer at your seat like okay. you can at a baseball game or you know sporting game here, and that the visiting team. Uh, fans were literally put in a small section and yeah. that there were guards around them. They were being protected. Yeah. Uh, that's what I remember. Well, <laughs> it's, it's not so much protection. It's more because basically with UK football, if you if you put them together, everyone will just start fighting, that's, especially yeah. if they've had a bit. Yeah. So no, they, was, yeah, they built a wall around the uh, yeah. the opposing team's fans. And then I think they were allowed to leave first so they could get a head start. Maybe getting yeah. to safety. No, it was it was a great experience. I loved it. Sometimes they have a police corridor from the ground to the train station to get them up, to get them out. So, anyway, sorry. Back to this. Sorry, you distracted me because I'm a Liverpool fan and we won the title this year. It's the first time in 30 years. So the fact that you picked them out is a good thing. Okay, so let's get back to this. So it's a highly relevant time right now, and it's a good time to discuss it because we have gone from a 2008 financial crisis to a, an even in some ways, a more scary crisis. I think the GDP drop in the UK was 24%. I don't know what it was in the US. Headlines are much, lots more government borrowing. Headlines yesterday, I think, uh, I mean, the gold price is up to uh, close to, if not over $2,000 now. Um, I saw that the there were reports in the Financial Times of a weakening dollar. So I know that you can't print unlimited amounts of money. I understand that there is an inflationary impact on increasing the money supply. Um, I've been to Venezuela. I've seen the impact on that. I've obviously read about Zimbabwe, Lebanon recently. I'm also aware that so even places like Turkey now, I think it's about 13% inflation. Is inflation the only downside in your world to a massive increase in the, in the supply of money? Is that the only thing we have to be aware of? Well, I don't, I know, but I don't also think that it's a massive increase in the supply of money per se 
that it that okay. poses the greatest risk to potential in runaway okay. or accelerating prices. Um, you know, you look at a place like Japan and you say, okay, here's a country that has virtually committed itself over the past three decades to trying to achieve its own 2% inflation target. All they want is 2%. My God, they would rejoice if they could hit 2%. I was there last year. It's all policymakers and politicians talk about. How do we reflate? How do we get to 2%? They cannot do it. And it's, I, I think a lot of people say in spite of, all of the so-called money printing, all of the QE, all of the expansion, the monetary base and so forth. In spite of that, they can't move the needle on inflation. They cannot get even close to hitting their own 2% inflation target. Now, maybe uh, we just simply have things backwards. You know, this idea that all you have to do is crank up the printing presses, increase the money supply, and that there's some automatic transmission mechanism that gets you from increased money supply to increased prices is just not borne out by the evidence. Remember, after the financial crisis, Bernanke tried too, and the Fed struggled for nine years. QE1, QE2, QE3, right? We were there too, huge expansion. We're doing it again, you know, with long buying and expansion of the base. So it isn't enough. It won't get you to inflation. Um, do I worry about things other than inflation? Sure. But MMT tries to emphasize that the relevant constraint in all of these discussions that take place about public policy, government finance, you hear people say, oh, President Obama, Peter Schiff, you mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. We're running out of money. We're going broke. No, we're not. Okay. That's bad logic. But can we spend too much? Yes. Is there evidence that at present we are at risk of, you know, creating an inflation problem because of what Congress has done so far with trillions of spending, what the Fed has done? There's no evidence of that. So inflation is this really tricky phenomenon. It's a dynamic process. You can get it uh, for reasons that have nothing to do with an increase in the money supply. Nothing to do with that, right? Look at, for example, uh, Milton Friedman, right, would say, Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And it became described as too much money chasing too few goods. And I think for a lot of people, we go straight to the too much money part and we forget about the too few goods part, right? So you look at what's happened in countries like Zimbabwe, for example. People say, well, Zimbabwe had hyperinflation. Yes, they did. Why did that happen? And people think, well, the government must have just printed a lot of money and it created hyperinflation. Well, no. What actually happened is that this guy, Robert Mugabe, came to power and he you know, wanted to reward the freedom fighters. He took land away from the whites who'd been farming land for forever and uh, redistributed and gave land to the blacks, to freedom fighters who didn't know how to farm the land. You have massive food shortages. All of a sudden, you're an agricultural economy. You got to feed your people. You're not growing the food. A massive collapse in the supply of food. Now you're trying to import food, but nobody wants your currency. So you have to buy foreign currencies. The value of your currency collapses as you're trying to import food to feed your people. So the point is, there's a lot going on in Zimbabwe that goes way beyond printing money leads to hyperinflation. You have a collapse of the productive capacity of the supply, and that can uh, easily create, you know, an acceleration of prices. Okay, so I guess what you're saying there is uh, an increase in the money supply alone doesn't guarantee hyperinflation, but if that is if that happens alongside, you know, a, a, a cut in productivity, that could lead to a higher inflation. So. 
are we would you say at the moment we are at a risk of that because we have significant parts of especially here in the UK significant parts of our economy have been locked down some parts are coming back and I think there's going to be some interesting uh, side effects on that so for example if you go to the pub now you have to book in and you have to be sat at a table whereas it used to be you could used to be able to stand like two three people deep at the bar trying to get a drink so these bars have a lot less customers naturally they may have to raise some of their prices so could the lockdown and the stimulus package lead to is that is that a scenario where we could have higher inflation yeah it's a great question so you, you know the way i think about it is first recognize that inflation is meant to be a term that applies to a generalized increase in prices so not just the price that you have to pay at the pub for the meal, for the you know beer or whatever, mm-hmm. but generalized increase in prices. So we, where do these? How do we measure this stuff? Well, we put together price indices, right? So you have you know government officials and others who build these uh, indices. They they are constructed by human beings. We decide what goes in, and then we decide how to weight each of those contributors. So housing, healthcare, energy, food, right? All of the things that are supposed to represent the spending behavior of the average consumer. We try to capture that. And then we track the movements over time of those individual consumer goods and how the prices are changing. So I think your thinking is, uh, your logic is, is perfectly reasonable to say, well, if restaurants are operating at reduced capacity, might you see some price increases in you know, uh, retail and restaurant, that sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. So say, sure, that could happen. If airlines oh, actually, can, are offering- can I, yeah. can I, can I, sorry, sorry to interrupt there. Um, can I just add to that? That, that was a, a single example. But I'm, what I'm starting to think now is we're actually at the, uh, potentially at the kind of like a junction in the road where we're going to see a wholesale shift in the global economy. And what I mean by that is a lot less people flying. And the airline industry probably won't recover for years. Another uh, issue is that a lot of people don't want to return into cities. I know there's been a move, say, in places like San Francisco, that I know of two companies have become remote first companies. I think it's Facebook and Coinbase, where they've seen the benefits of people working from home, which the secondary effect of that is it affects the retailers who used to rely on the staff in the offices. I know that's in London. We've got that problem as well. So it's it, we're, we're, we're potentially seeing this wholesale change in the economy, which I, I don't think can happen without a drop in GDP, because I think a certain number of businesses are going to are going to suffer and going to struggle, and then people are going to have to rebuild new types of businesses. So it's not just that one scenario only. I just can see a, 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 just a significant drop in the overall productivity of the country because of this. Yet at the same time, the only option the government had is up until this point, we've had the furlough schemes. But after that, we're probably going to have uh, an increase in welfare payments. I mean, social social payments for you know those who are unemployed, etc. So the, the two things that you've said potentially lead to inflation feel like they could be happening right now. Look, I feel I still continue to feel like what we're up against, uh, the headwinds are deflationary forces. That that is how I feel. I feel like incomes, it's not as if we're going to sustain incomes at their current level, but productivity and output is going to fall. And so everybody's going to have more purchasing power and we're going to go out and spend. Incomes are collapsing. Unemployment is likely to remain high for a very long period of time. I see every day 
people who are being told, well, your salary is being reduced. Yeah, you're going to keep working, but you're going to have a pay cut. Well, how much are you going to consume when your pay is cut by 10 or 20 or more percent? So it's a tension of these forces where there are going to be some bottlenecks in some industries and prices are going to increase. But alongside that, like you said, what's going to happen to commercial real estate? What's going to happen to housing? Right now, we've got uh, an eviction crisis uh, right here in the United States. Tens of millions of people face, right? So then what happens to apartment? What happens to rental prices? So yeah, some things are going to get more expensive, but I am very worried about, you know, entire industries, um, incomes and uh, other prices just, you know, significantly falling in this kind of environment. Is it is it unhelpful to look at aggregate inflation then? Because we have we're going to have inflation a certain so we might see food food inflation and see fuel deflation. We might exactly. see property inflation. We might see deflation in other areas. We only ever get an aggregate inflation price in the in the news, which is based on the you know the UK basket of goods. But actually, should we have different uh, measures of inflation and deflation so we understand the different parts of the economy this is affecting? Yeah, and we do, right? I mean, you, you, I know you know there are different measures of inflation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we strip out things that are considered volatile, like food and energy. Sometimes we leave them in. The Fed likes a measure called core PCE, personal consumption expenditure. Other people think of CPI, or we have producer price indices and GDP deflation. So we got a lot of different things. But you're right. I mean, if energy prices continued to remain low. I mean, we had a period of time where oil was, you know, it was, it was like so cheap to buy oil you, that you were making money on storage, you know. So energy prices could collapse, but at the same time, healthcare prices could spike because, you know, private health insurance companies could be raising premiums, which they are. Uh, and that could, and since energy, healthcare and housing are three big drivers of headline inflationary pressures. If you have one category going way up like healthcare and another category coming down like energy or housing, if we're going to have an eviction crisis and housing prices are going to collapse, people are losing their homes, you're being foreclosed on, you're losing your apartment, I think housing prices would likely fall in that environment. So on balance, you're right. You, you say, you know, we might see the headline inflation come down even as uh, things like food and, I don't know, uh, yeah. what did we say, healthcare and other things are becoming much, much more expensive. Education, what's going to happen to college, uh, the cost of tuition? Schools right now are saying we're going to cut tuition by 20% because you can't be on campus. And a lot of parents are complaining. They're saying, why am I paying full fare if my child can't be in the room with a professor and have the college experience and all that? And colleges are trying to hang on by their fingertips. And so they're saying, well, look, we're going to cut tuition. So that's a big uh, contributor to, you know, CPI or a measure like that. You know, what is the cost of education? Well, that's likely to come down. So, so your feeling is this is this kind of all just balances out? Well, I don't know if it balances out. I'm yeah. saying no, no one knows, but there, there are, there's push and pull in so many of these major categories that it's just really hard to say on balance what happens. But what I don't see are all of the major categories moving together in one direction, where it's a no-brainer to say, of course, we're going to be facing higher inflation. Next up, I talked to Stephanie more about modern monetary theory. But before that, I've got a message from my amazing sponsors. So first up, we've got Sportsbet. Have you checked out sportsbet.io? They are the best place for gaming online and being a proper badass company. 
Of course, they accept Bitcoin. And I've got to know the company. I've been out to Estonia. I've hung out with the team. I've met the CEO. And they don't just accept Bitcoin. They actively promote it. They are a team of Bitcoiners. And now the football season is coming to a close. Liverpool's champions, which is amazing. Tottenham still utterly terrible. But we do have the cup final and we do have the Champions League. But even with football end, it's not an end to the sport. The basketball season is starting. So you basketball lovers, you can get on sportsbet.io and take out a wager on this coming season. And they have loads of promotions for new customers to get started. So if you'd like to have a wager with sportsbet.io, you can now choose one price boost per day across each sport on every market they offer. If you want to find out more about this, head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T.io forward slash promotions. Also, I'm going to talk about Casa, who are the best in Bitcoin security. Look, and they really are the fucking best in Bitcoin security. Now, come on. Are you leaving any of your Bitcoin on an exchange? Are you doing it because you're worried about holding it? Or are you worried about the risks of using a single hardware wallet? It's time to get your shit together. It's time to get Casa. Now I got Casa, I signed up, got so much peace of mind now. Everything for me is sorted. I do not have to worry about me being a moron, screwing up my security. And I also don't have to worry about single device failures. Don't have to worry about hackers. I don't have to worry about personal attacks. It is all covered for me now because I'm a Casa customer and they have a product for every one of you badass Bitcoiners out there. With Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet for only $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their three or five multi-sig, the best protection for large Bitcoin holders at an amazing price. And with Casa Diamond, you get their full service offering, including a customized personal security review, inheritance, and of course, the best in class security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind find out more at keys.casa which is k-e-y-s dot c-a-s-a okay so let help me understand then what what are the risks with mmt because inflation is a risk you talk about that in your book it has to be controlled inflation okay so yes if inflation is the relevant constraint then how should we think about it? And we've been having a conversation about some supply side factors, oil price shocks, right, can feed Mm -hmm. through into inflation. That has nothing to do with how tight you're allowing the labor market to get, how hot you're running the economy or anything like that. So we recognize, I talk about in the book, the way economists usually think is that you can have uh, an uptick and inflationary pressures for um, supply side reasons, right? Cost push sort of things. And then you can have the demand pull sort of forces at work where, you know, you're really running in the economy so hot that we don't have the productive capacity to keep up. The businesses can't churn out enough new goods and services to keep pace with that higher spending, with that higher demand. And then you get inflationary pressure. So, Um, You know, the way that I've been kind of talking about this lately that seems to be effective in terms of helping people kind of understand is I know that a lot of your listeners, probably most, are not watching video. They're just listening to the audio. But I'm holding in my hand uh, a Diet Coke, right? Some can of soda, standard size can of soda. It holds uh, 16 ounces of liquid. So that's that's what I have. Now, I know that this is a, this can has 16 ounces of liquid in it. And I know that this glass that I'm holding, which is empty, is a 16 ounce glass. It will hold exactly 16 ounces of liquid and not a drop more. Okay. So I can open this can and I can start pouring into this glass and I can get every drop of liquid into this glass without overflowing the glass. 
Okay. But I can Mm -hmm. do that. So think of the glass as the economy. I can, Mm -hmm. I can pour too fast. And if I start pouring too fast, even though it's only 16 ounces, I can still cause the thing to run over. Right. Because this is the speed limit. Yeah. You talk about like the speed. Right. So if I, if I'm applying too much pressure to a certain part of the glass, like a certain part of the economy, if I'm trying to do infrastructure, big infrastructure investment at a time when we don't have the construction workers, architects, engineers, the machines, if there's a residential housing boom or commercial, you know, if people are building a lot of stuff and the people and the equipment is already in use, then the government coming in and saying, I want to do big infrastructure is going to put them in competition with the private sector for those resources. And it can create inflationary pressures. What I'm saying is I can I can watch what I'm doing and I can pour the liquid in. And when I see, like I do right now, you can't see it, but I can, I can see it starting to bubble up. So I back off. I stop pouring. Right. I wait until the foam goes down. And if I manage it all just right, then I get it right to the top of the lip. Nothing drops out. Nothing spills over. And it's beautiful. Look. The real world is messier than that. Okay, we can't of course, yeah. look at the economy in the same way I can look at this glass and know exactly when to pull back and how much space I have. So what do we do as economists? What do we do as public policymakers and others? Well, we we try to get estimates. We take the economy's temperature through time. How We look at the unemployment rate. We look at capacity utilization rates. We actually call businesses and survey them. We do it every single month and we... Um, publish the data. And we say, how much of your existing plant and equipment are you currently utilizing? And the business says, we're at, we're at about 80% or we're at about 73% of capacity. And we put those uh, statistics together and publish them. So we have ideas. We have macro models, Moody's models, Fed models. You know, you've got a hundred different operations or more who have large scale macro models who could take a piece of legislation. Let's say Congress is thinking, I don't know. You know, we, we might have recovery underway here. The labor market might be picking up. We might be getting close to our uh, the glass being full. I don't know if it's safe to put some more liquid in. What do we think? So you analyze. So you run models. So you try to figure out if we were to do 200 billion of additional spending, 500 billion right now, what is the likely impact on inflation? And you model this stuff. And is it going to be imperfect? Yes. But are you going to have a reasonable estimate, right? Uh, sometimes you'll miss on the upside and inflation will turn out to be a little higher. Sometimes you'll miss on the downside. But the, the point is that, you know, we've done this stuff before. We used to be really good at it in the 40s and 50s, coming out of World War II, during and coming out of World War II. The U.S. did an extremely good job managing inflationary pressures in an environment where, you know, government spending massively ramped up to virtually 50 percent of total spending. And, you know, we didn't end up with a hyperinflationary problem or anything. People figured it out. The point the point is, what's the range? Like, the, the, like, what is the if you as a uh, an economist who believes in this, what is the safe range of inflation that you want to keep within? I know, like most target two percent, but look, what matters is you know people's real income. You don't you don't want to get into a situation okay. where uh, you know inflation's running at four percent. Let's pick a number uh, per annum, and wages are only increasing at two percent per year, and everybody's becoming two percent in real terms poorer every year. So you don't want to get into that kind of a situation. The point I'm trying to make is that the government is just one spender in the economy and it ain't nearly the biggest, right? Consumers 
get most of the space in that glass I talked about. They get to do most of the spending. And the government has to compete for space in the glass with everybody else who's spending. And that means households, which account for more than two-thirds of total spending. They have to share space with private businesses. And they have to share space with the rest of the world. So if you want to apply more liquid, you have to try to get a sense of whether the glass can safely accommodate the additional liquid that you want to put in, the spending, right? The additional spending you want to do and, re and recognize that that isn't going to be a 16 ounce glass forever. It will be an 18 ounce glass and it will be a 20 ounce glass that some of the spending that's done, the private sector, right? Through innovation, uh, R&D, improvements in technological know-how, ca more capital equipment that grows the size of the capacity over time. Government can make certain investments that also enhance the productive capacity of the economy over time. So pretty soon, you know, we can pour 18 uh, ounces into the glass without a problem or 20 ounces, you know? Okay. I, I, so I get what you're saying. It, it, this is this is very much macroeconomic theory. And I guess if I was looking from the angle of the Austrian economists, one of the things about it is that potentially whilst this works at a macro level on an individual level this may be unfair um so one of the things there's um there's this website have you seen this website what what it's basically what the fuck happened in 1971 it talks about what happened it's got a lot of charts since the u.s came off the gold standard and it, it highlights things that for example that productivity has increased increased since uh 1971 by 246 percent but Compensation has only increased by 115%. And there are also the people that point to the fact that whilst uh, MMT as a, as a like economic theory will uh, keep the economy you know, growing, potentially it drives greater inequality because what ends up happening is the, the, the new dollars end up going to those who need it, need it the least and those who need it the most don't tend to see it. And that also, one of the things you talk about, sorry, I'm throwing a lot in here, is that actually the real reason for taxation is is fairer distribution of income. It's not that so much that the government need it, but inflation tends to be an unfair tax because some people will say inflation is essentially a hidden tax and it's an unfair tax. Do you understand those criticisms? Well, I don't even know that they're criticisms. I think most of what you just said, most, not all, is more or less True. It's not criticism of MMT. The recognizing that worker productivity, the trajectory has gone like this, while the real mm -hmm. median wage has gone like this. I'm showing one, you know, increasing over time and the other kind of flatlining. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's just a reality. That's just what the yeah. data tells us. Now, some people will interpret that yeah. to say, wow, what, what changed in 1971? If you look at the Economic Policy Institute, EPI, they are probably the ones who put the chart out that this person or this website is using to refer to this because they either popularized, I think they, they started the thing. But EPI will give you very different reasoning for that divergence of real median wages and worker productivity. EPI economists won't say, this is because the US went off the gold standard. EPI economists will look at this and say, this is down to a lot of things, the decline of the manufacturing base, the decline with that of unions that were there to protect workers' wages and to fight for those wage increases and globalization. And they'll layer on, you know, another six or seven reasons to explain why that picture looks like that, as opposed to just saying, oh, that's when we went off the gold standard. That must have, that must be what wrecked everything. But um, is it true that 
deficits can be used to deliver that financial windfall that we talked about earlier to people who least need the help. Sure. That's what I would argue. That's what the Republican tax cuts did. Okay. They, so the Republicans came in in December of 2017, passed these massive tax cuts, corporate income tax and personal. 83% of the benefits on the personal income tax side went to people in the top 1% of the oh, income 1%. distribution. Yeah. So when I said every deficit is good for someone, that's true, right? They, those And Republicans understand this. They know that uh, increasing the deficit will increase somebody else's surplus. They just want to direct the flow of the financial savings, the surplus, um, to the people who you know they, they care most about helping, and that happens to be people who least need the help. But look, if uh, if we operated the budget differently, we could have added the same two trillion to the deficit, but diverted those financial surpluses into the hands of people who most need the help. Now, the the other point you raised is, does it end up going to the rich anyway? So if you help a poor person, and you know all they have to do is um, pay their their payday lender back, or you know their landlord, or they're struggling. It, it's just churn. It passes right through their hands and goes to Jeff Bezos or somebody like that. Okay. Well, yeah, and that's we have other structural problems in the economy that we need to you know figure out how to uh, allow, let's say, the bottom half of the population to be something other than just a consumption unit that churns dollars back to people at the very top because that's what happens too often. Yeah, I, I guess one of the things I struggle with, because it's good timing to do this, because I, um, I did a four-part series about Steve Mnuchin, and I was it started out trying to understand what happened post-2008 financial crisis uh, when he started the One West Bank and – uh, essentially built this foreclosure machine. So what I ended up doing was I had to actually go back and study what happened in the Great Depression and what FDR did with a, with housing policy. And then I jumped forward and I looked at when Glass-Steagall was essentially, I wouldn't say repealed, it was more like neutered. And that was campaigned for under Reagan, but actually happened under Clinton. And then the economic crisis happened under Bush and a lot of the stimulus on, afterwards came uh, during Obama. So it felt like actually... A lot of the, how would I put it, malinvestment by the government is it has been both by both parties. And I know, I know, I think there's a I think there is a sound argument for the Democrats having a, a kind of a leaning to being a fairer distribution of income, and the Republicans tend to be, I would say, a little bit, especially under Trump, supporting the, the wealthiest. But at the same time, the point I'm trying to get to is that. You talk about in the book that the government isn't like a household. It doesn't have to have budget responsibility like we do. Look, if you don't earn enough money or you can't pay your mortgage, you're going to lose your home. And you have to you have to make sure it happens. I do the same. I have to make sure I can you know, buy food for, for my children. But I wonder if, and if actually government does need that kind of budget responsibility because the incentive structure for those in power – is to support the wealthiest friends and also potentially invest in i mean the as i understand it the us came off the gold standard to fund the vietnam war which you know i think we all agree was a, a disaster but also at the same time perhaps now there's an incentive for donald trump to misuse the deficit to keep the stock market high because he's got an election coming so I, I guess the, the the general thing I'm trying to say is that the incentive structure for those in power is, is to misuse this ability. 
you perhaps have a very solid argument, economic argument, how MMT can work if it's used ethically. I just don't think the powers of be use these things ethically. Well, so first I will say that MMT works as a description because the first answer I yeah. gave you about MMT is that it's a framework for analysis, right? It's a lens. So um, it works yeah. because it helps us to understand the monetary system, the nature of government finance and, and so forth. That is not to say, and I say it uh, many times, I think, in the book, that doesn't mean that the currency issuer can't abuse the power of the purse. And you just ran through a, a series of examples that span decades where you say, I don't like the, what yeah. they did here and I don't like what they did there. Well, I don't like it either. Um, but MMT didn't make that happen. We didn't come away. We didn't come around until, you know, the mid 2000s or whatever. So, uh, you know, we can't really finger MMT and say this is the kind of thing that will happen when when your thinking takes hold. This was, you know, Cheney said Reagan proved deficits don't matter. So the budget was being used aggressively in the 80s, the deficit to massively increase defense spending and to do big tax cuts. You know, those are two things that Reagan did. MMT didn't make it possible. The nature of the monetary system made it possible. And look, I mean, it's a democracy. So we elect officials. We know there's a problem with money, uh, with finance in you know terms of our electoral process, the influence of big money in the political system. Now we have entrenched it with Citizens United. So yes, got a lot of people who uh, are elected in theory to be representatives of the people in their districts and to do right by them and to promote the public interest and serve the public purpose and so forth. And they get to DC and then they find, you know, for a variety of reasons uh, that they are casting votes that are not largely aligned with the interest of the people who put them there, but instead serving the interests of, you know, the powerful and the wealthy and so forth. So we know that happens. And so what is the answer to that? It's, it's, it's got to be in the political process. It's not in the economics. It's in the politics. It's in the political process. But can you separate the two? Really? I well, mean, because it, it feels like supporting MMT comes with an acceptance that there will be malinvestment by you know, those who get to, to, to spend the, increase the deficit and spend the money. So how do you change that? How do you have budget responsibility? Well, so I tried in the last chapter of the book to tackle this question, this, this exact yeah. question. And, you know, what? who did I write this book for? I wrote this book for people. I wanted this book to empower regular people so that when your elected official comes back to his or her district, okay, I'm a voter in Kansas, my congressman comes back to the district and stands before, you know, some subset of people who vote, who elected him and sent him uh, to, to be a member of Congress. And I start saying, you know, why aren't we doing more too? And I lay out the concerns that I have about our economy, my well-being, my perceived, right, whatever. And I say, why aren't you voting for this? Why aren't you doing something to solve these problems? And he says, look, I, I agree with you. I wish we could do more. But we got this deficit. We got this $24 trillion debt. We are broke. We can't do that. That is my answer to your question. It's the accountability has to come from us. And as long as we are misinformed, as long as we believe them when they say, listen, I can only use the budget to do tax cuts for the rich because I was trying to grow the economy. I can't afford any of this other stuff. So 
how do we get better budgeting? How do we get a better use of public money? Because it's federal money. I mean, people talk about taxpayer money and all. It's not taxpayer money, okay? It's federal money. It's our money. How do we get more transparency, better accountability from our elected officials? And I think part of the answer starts with the rest of us understanding the nature of the money itself, right? What are the limits? What are the constraints? What can we legitimately ask of government? Uh, and what are the constraints? And let's start just improving the political discourse. Let's have a better debate. And then over time, I hope, end up with better public policy. Okay. Could, hmm. So I'm just trying to digest this. Could I argue that it is the individual's money and it's not government money in that it is our productivity, your productivity, you writing the book and creating the book and selling it that, that creates value. And it's my productivity and creating the podcast and getting sponsors that creates value. And that the government doesn't actually create money apart from the only way it generates revenue is by taking from us or printing it. And therefore, therefore, if they have target inflation, they're actually they're actually reducing the wealth that we actually create. So could you see a fair argument for flipping your point there and actually saying it is our money, not theirs? No. Um, but I'll I'll give you I'll give you my You, un- you understand so. my point though, don't you? I do. Look. I, I'm going to go back and use the example of the CARES Act again. Okay. Okay. The 2.2 trillion. That is a bill. It just starts as a, a document, right? It is. It is Congress writing down on paper, literally, their intentions. We want to spend 2.2 trillion. We want money to go to the Small Business Association for the PPP program. We want money to help support the unemployed. We want this $1,200 one-off so-called stimulus payment. We want to do this. We want to do that. So they cobbled together a plan, and they said, "This is what we want to spend." They didn't take our money. There's no our money in that. This is Congress writing down a plan of spending, sending that through, getting the votes, getting the signature from the president. And then what happens? The Federal Reserve is put on notice. The Fed is the government's fiscal agent. It's the government's bank. That piece of legislation effectively orders up $2.2 trillion from the Federal Reserve. It says it is Congress saying to the Fed, get ready because we've just ordered 2.2 trillion and you're gonna make the payments. How does the Fed do that? Well, they change the numbers in the appropriate bank accounts. They carry out the payments on behalf of the US Treasury. Every payment that is made was authorized by Congress, our elected body politic. So that's where the money comes from. Now, if you wanna say the government can't create value, all it can do is dilute what we already had. So this is a horrible thing, well, hang on. How, how much better off would the economy be without that support, with all of those small businesses going under, with all of those people uh, losing their rent, right? So, Well, I think I could throw something in here. I think, I think this is where nuance is needed because one of the things I've – and I had debated this with quite a few people, especially with the libertarians who are criticizing the money printing. I was like, well, what else could they do? And a lot of people would say, well, let people run their businesses and let businesses fail. But I do think without some kind of stimulus program, there were people who would not be able to work, who would have no income, and their only option would be begging charity or crime. And um, so I understand why something had to be done. Whether or not you agree with that, I understand why something had to be done. Stimulus checks, very helpful. The the one challenge I would give, and particularly towards what Steve, Steve Mnuchin said, is 
is these loans that were offered to huge companies, including, I think, some of the largest uh, hedge funds even received money. There were lots of companies that received money to to allow their business to continue. But these businesses are ultimately going to fail anyway. And also, some of these people could have borrowed money in the private markets. So I think so, I think there's some I think there's some things we have to look at here because almost certainly that money enabled the stock the stock market to stay relatively actually to grow and in keeping the stock market you know at a higher levels whilst other people are lo- losing their jobs and trying to survive on $1200 stimulus checks we know that the people who tend to own stocks and shares and gold tend to be the wealthiest so it creates a bigger wealth gap so so I think nuance there is needed Hey, I'm not going to argue with you, um, Peter, at all. No, no question that both things are true, that some people who desperately needed help got help and that that benefits not just the person who got the help, but their neighbor as well. It's better for me if my neighbors are being foreclosed on Mm -hmm. and the value of all the homes in this neighborhood, including mine, are collapsing. Um, It's better if, you know, the worker is continuing to receive some income because I'm a, you know, I'm a, I, hey, I'm Starbucks and I'm still open and I still have some long line of cars of people who can afford to, you know, spend a few bucks on a coffee every day. It is also, of course, true that a lot of people who didn't necessarily need to tap that lending facility got help. Absolutely true. So what do you do, though? I mean, this I think what a lot of people would say is time was of the essence. We didn't have time. Congress didn't have time to carefully carve out, you know, language in the CARES Act that would only allow funds to go where they were most needed. Now, there were things they could have written in that would have ensured that more small businesses, minority-owned businesses and others had better access and so forth. There, There were things that could have been written in that weren't that allowed, you know, the big guys and the connected folks with the fancy accountants and the financial advisors and others to put them way ahead of the pack and exhaust that initial 350 billion. And so, yeah, it's it's imperfect. Legislating in a crisis is bound to result in, you know, some people taking advantage of uh, getting federal money that you wouldn't ordinarily like to see happen. Well, I, I think this is this goes back to my other point where I think this is the main problem I have with MMT, outside of the first point, I think some 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 of it can be a little bit unfair. I think inflation is in some ways an unfair hidden tax, but it's the it's it's you know what in the UK I'm very jealous that we don't have a constitution, and the reason I'm jealous is you have this base set of rules that you can refer to for your country. The reason I don't believe you'll ever have a, a, a tyrannical dictator in the US is because of your constitution. And the great thing about the Constitution and the forefathers, from from the limited amount I've studied it, is they understood, they understood the weaknesses of man. I, I say man and women, but they understood the weaknesses of humans and and our own um, uh, flaws. So they built a constitution around that to protect against that. And I think one of the the difficulties is is that the the Constitution isn't wide enough to protect how government spends money, and. Essentially, like one of the things I've noticed is, is, is this kind of Wall Street and the Goldman Sachs alumni starting to take up high high position high high profile roles in the U.S. government. I mean, you will have seen it with Elizabeth Warren. She's uh, she thinks um, Trump administration is an extension of Wall Street, and I, I guess that's one of my main problems. Is there is a 
structurally it is set up in a way that they can protect their own. And so whilst even if I wanted to agree with MMT, I think structurally the way uh, politics operates in the US is set up so it can be abused, it can be corrupted. And whilst we can go back to the voting booth and and vote against this, really there's I think you need wholesale structural change to even allow it to be slightly fair. Look, I uh, I'm sympathetic yeah. to what you're saying. I and, and again, MMT is is not a panacea. It's not going to protect us from bad actors. It's not going to protect us from the special interests taking uh, positions of power and you know diverting public policy to serve the interests of you know tiny you know group of individuals. It, look, I'm conceding all of that. What I do say in the last chapter of the book, though, is mm-hmm. that the federal budgeting process, like we get to decide before coronavirus, the federal government budget was four and a half trillion dollars. That is how much the federal government spent every year on ve- on all the program, four and a half mm-hmm. trillion, right? Now, of course, that number is much bigger. It'll be six and a half, seven and eight trillion, whatever it's going to be. Um, Congress can always write and pass any budget spending bill it chooses. So what should be the checks that are in place? Right now, there's mainly one. And that check is it goes through the Congressional Budget Office. You want to spend money? You want to pass a bill? Send it to CBO. See what they say. So we have this budget scoring agency that is supposed to be nonpartisan and all that kind of stuff. And they look at the bill and they say what? hmm, let me study this proposed spending to see if it adds to the deficit. That's the primary concern. And if you can get your bill through the Congressional Budget Office with a good score, and let me tell you, having worked in the Senate, that's what it's like. Members of Congress write a bill and then cross their fingers. They sit back and wait. What is CBO going to say? What is CBO going to say? Am I going to get this? You know, Am I going to get to vote on this and so forth? What I'm saying is that is probably the least useful feedback we could possibly ask for. Um, Let's help lawmakers with a better um, framework for analyzing proposed legislation. I don't care if it adds to the deficit. I care if it carries inflation risk and if lawmakers have adequately mitigated that risk, if there's been a careful analysis of the proposed spending. I care if it widens income and wealth inequality. Nobody asks CBO to look at this Mm -hmm. proposed spending and give feedback to lawmakers to say, what is this going to do to the um, wealth gap? What is this going to do to the distribution of income and so forth? So we don't ask those questions. So there are a lot of changes that we could make. And I propose them to the federal budgeting process itself that would better protect people like us from lawmakers abusing the power of the purse and I think help us get better outcomes. I'm not you know, suggesting that I have the perfect plan and I can fix all, you know, plug all of the possible holes where, you know, money is going to leak into the buckets of the the very rich. I can't do that. But I think I can provide um, some insights for getting us a better framework, you know, for how we how the government spends money, what what the evaluation, the analytics behind that before we give the green light to go ahead and spend. So, so what you're saying is, I mean, you accept, I guess, some of my criticisms, and you're saying, but that is a, a trade-off of the the federal government having the ability at times of crisis to be able to, you know, support a growth in the economy, to be able to 
support welfare payments to help hopefully create jobs in other parts of the economy? Yeah, I don't want to so constrain. I would not want to so constrain Congress that, you know, when you're hit with a crisis like coronavirus, that you have institutionalized legal framework, say, where Congress can't act in a matter of days or a week to spin out a bill and get, um, you know, address the unfolding crisis because it th- would violate this, it would violate mm. that, it would, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. And f- interestingly enough, a couple of months ago, I interviewed a libertarian by the name of Scott Horton, and he actually he actually agreed that we're in a very unique situation under coronavirus, that, that he almost agrees that the federal government has to do something. It was quite interesting to have that conversation. I, I guess outside of coronavirus, still, I wonder, so what what do you think of the Austrian school of thought that a fairer system is is based on the individual and there would there would be a requirement okay let's not go for austrian but let's say there would be a requirement for the government to balance the budget what are the implications of having a balanced budget well in the us context so in in the book in let's mm-hmm. say chapter 5 if uh, it'd be a lot easier if i could you know uh, use visuals in some sense, but look. Well, hopefully everyone will read this book afterwards, and I, I will put it in the show notes because I think people should. So let's let's take let's suppose we could take as a starting point that the goal is to get a full employment economy that we want the glass mm-hmm. full. Now we have to recognize that there are a lot of leakages that happen. Every dollar that I save and don't spend is a dollar that can't be captured by some producer trying to sell their goods and services, right? Saving is a leakage. Every dollar that is taxed away from me is a dollar I don't have and can't spend buying some good or service. So taxes are a leakage. And every dollar that I spend buying goods or services produced abroad is a dollar that can't be captured by some U.S. producer who is trying to earn a revenue, turn a profit, and stay in business. So it is it, it leaks out of the U.S. economy. So we got these three leakages, savings, taxes, and buying imports, right? So the question you're asking is, if we, if government had to balance its budget, if it had to match the amount of liquid it pours into the glass with the amount that it takes out of the glass, then the question is, can we keep the glass full? Can we keep the glass full? How, how can we keep the glass full? The private sector as a whole normally wants to be in a position where it is net saving, where it is spending less than its income. So it's not filling up our glass sufficiently because it wants to take some of those dollars and leak them out, saving. The rest of the world doesn't buy as much from us as we buy from them. So dollars are going out of our glass and filling somebody else's bucket. So that's all lowering the water level in our glass. The only way to keep the economy at full employment, given the desire of the rest of the world to net save dollars, that's why they're net exporting to us, they want to earn our currency and save it, and the desire of the private sector to net save, to spend less than its income, the only way the output gets sold is if somebody provides an injection. There has to be somebody who's willing to spend more than their income to allow everybody else to spend less than their income. So the that is the macroeconomic logic that tells you um, what happens if the government balances its budget. It means 
chronically, given the saving desires of the other two parties, the rest of the world and the private sector, you're not going to have a full employment economy. But I would argue that saving is a positive. It's a positive for people to save, and it's a negative that the value of the money they've saved is debased by inflation. And also, the I would argue also that if if we're encouraging people to spend we're not encouraging we're not building a sound solid economy based on high quality production we're actually incentivizing the production of kind of cheap crap oh, look. I, I, that doesn't necessarily <laughs> follow I, of course saving is good at the individual level i want to try not to yeah. spend all of my income i would like to try to set something aside save for the future i don't want to work for, for every day for the rest of my life so at some point i'll stop working uh you know uh, my wage income will go to zero and i'd like to have some savings set aside but recognize the point i made which is every dollar i choose to save and not spend is a dollar that isn't captured by some seller of output so if i take my take-home pay and I just say, my husband and I sit down and we come up with a budget plan and we say, you know what, we're going to start saving 10% uh, of our income. It, we've been saving, let's say, 5%. We're going to double that. So we're going to save more every month. That's great. That puts us in a more secure position to pay college tuition in the future, retire, whatever. But if everyone in the economy tries to accomplish mm -hmm. this, tries to spend less and save more, then it, I hope, is pretty clear that you are reducing aggregate expenditure, which means that the output doesn't get sold, right? Some, a lot of businesses are to lose customers. Capitalism runs on sales. You can't make spending the enemy of capitalism because that's what our GDP is, right? It's nothing more than a measure of the total number of dollars that are spent on newly produced mm. goods and services in the economy in a given period of time, like a year, right? So spending is the engine here. Does that mean that everything people spend money on is you know, high quality, whatever. No, go to the mall. You see the kiosks with the little squishies and all the little fidget spinners. And there's a lot of crap out there that we're spending money on. But if somebody's buying it, then that must be uh, a reflection of the mm. value that they place on this fidget spinner for one godforsaken reason or another. No, I understand. We've got fidget spinners all around our house somewhere or another. But I, th I think the, the point I was trying to get to is that that – isn't it a case that if we all save 10%, that increases the scarcity of the dollar, therefore increases the value of the dollar? No. So what I've, what I've learned about this is wrong. <laughs> I think so. Um, because I would have thought that... The dollars don't go away. They just... Why would it, why would because, it increase the value of the dollar? Because I would have thought in my world is that if it's hard, if like if if I'm if I'm really don't want to spend my dollars or pounds, or whatever, I really just want to look after them. People have to produce; they have to produce things that I really want to buy. So the quality of production of items goes up. Perhaps the value of items goes up. But the again, I'm, I'm by the way, I'm hugely out of my depth here. <laughs> but but. As I understand it, it, this just comes down to simple supply and demand. If the supply is constricted, then the value goes up. Yeah, I just don't think it works that way. I mean, you, we have seen qualitative improvements in the production of a whole range of electronics. And I mean, right, um, producers improve the quality or the perceived quality of products over time. 
at the same time, you get a lot of crap that's produced. I mean, we invent new, uh, but but you're not going to get me to. I can give you. I can give you a good example. I I can give you because this is the only time because I I can I can use Bitcoin as an example, and, and um, I know you know you're not in that area, but let's just use that as an example. That there's the 21 million Bitcoin. They're limited by supply. I hold on to my Bitcoin. I don't want to spend them, and lots of people do the same. As other people want those Bitcoin, their relative value to the dollar or the pound goes up. Similar to gold. Gold is exactly the same. As more people want access to gold, especially right now, and people aren't willing to sell it, therefore the price, the relative value of gold to the dollar or pound goes up. Therefore, the value of gold is going up. I, I assume the same would be true about the dollar. If I wanted to, or the pound, if I wanted to save my pounds and dollars and you did and I was less willing to spend it, the relative value of that goes up as well. So look, let's like here's a real world example. People say, well, suppose the dollar gets easier to get. Let's say we make the dollar easier to mm. get uh, internationally. The government's running deficits, it's easier to get dollars. Does the dollar does the value of the dollar automatically go down? And it turns out, you know, there are God knows how many studies, thousands and thousands of empirical studies that attempt mm. to look at what happens to the value of the dollar, let's say in relation to the budget deficit, which makes more dollars available. Is there um, some necessary, like robust empirical relationship? There isn't. No one has found that. You would think that, you know, let's say with QE, here's another example, right? A huge expansion of the base. Look again at Japan. What has happened? When I was there last year, the big concern uh, from Japanese policymakers that I was talking to was the strong yen. They're worried that the yen is too strong. And so there just isn't this neat and tidy sort of relationship. For every dollar you decide to save, you say, oh, I'm robbing you know, the marketplace somehow of dollars, and therefore that should strengthen the value of the dollar. For everybody who's out there doing that, somebody like me walks into a bank, sits down with the loan officer, borrows a few hundred thousand dollars, and I've just more than wiped out, right? So what you're withholding, I can easily walk into any bank and, you know, I'll walk out with newly created um, dollar my account that I will then go out and spend. So Right, I think we're reaching the point of the discussion where I'm definitely at the limitations of my ability to, to even discuss and debate. Oh, nah. you. Uh, I'm, uh, do you know one of the funny things that I'll, I'll, I'll put to you is that I, I speak to a lot of people who are, are, are very certain in in their views of economics, whether it's Austrian economics, whether it's you know, yourself, whether it's Keynesian, and I kind of drift between them all, just trying to think. There's so many people who are so certain in their world, and, and try and understand it all is very, very complicated. But I do, I do recognise where I'm at the the limit <laughs> of what I know. Um, I'm going to finish just on a final question. Could you be wrong? Are, are there part because you said in your book that you were a skeptic, and now obviously you're not, and you've written the book. Could you be wrong, or are there aspects of MMT that that you're unsure on or concern you? Well, I mean, the, the biggest one is the one that we spent quite a bit of time talking about, which is, you know, how do you, once everybody, let's suppose that we, we got 535 members of Congress to say, ah, I'm not worried about deficits anymore. Mm -hmm. I get it now. That's not the relevant constraint. It's inflation. How do we then begin the hard work of transforming the way that they actually behave, right? How do they take a vote? How should we evaluate this proposed spending? And so, you know, that's messy. That's po that's politics. But am I? Do I think that I'm going to be wrong about sort of core tenets of MMT? The idea that deficits um, don't 
absorb, uh, eat up private savings that they drive up interest rates and lead to crowding out and all this stuff. I don't think I'm wrong about that. Uh, I do. I think that the government is going to bounce a check. Do I think that, you know, guys like Peter Schiff who say we're broke, do I think that I'm going to be wrong and that one day we're going to wake up and the for sale sign is going to be hanging on the United States uh, government? No, I don't think I'm going to be wrong about that. So there are core tenets, the accounting insights of MMT, the notion that the government is the issuer of the currency, that it can manage interest rates. I think we're watching all of that now. You know, it's all of the the people who were so sure that deficits drive interest rates up um, or that QE is inflationary. I mean, that those people that asserted those things with real, you know, fervor, I think, um, you know, are demonstrably wrong. And I think MMT helps with understanding why they're wrong. I'll say it that way. Okay. Well, it's very useful. Um, I, I, I have a couple of predictions. Once this is released, there will, there's going to be some people who are going to want to debate you. They're going to say, let me debate her, Pete, who, who will disagree fundamentally with what you say. I know there are some people I've spoken to um, privately who agree with the ideas behind MMT. I guess the p- place I am in is that I just directionally wish we had smaller government, less government, uh, less things the government felt they needed to spend money on, which I don't think they need to do, kind of deregulated markets. And directionally, we we head to, to a world of less government and more individuality. But it's definitely been useful for me to listen to this. I will share it out in the show notes. I recommend you switch off Twitter for two days when this goes live because your mentions will be full of Bitcoiners telling you why That's you're okay. wrong ferociously attacking your arguments um but no i do appreciate you appreciate you coming on um i did enjoy the book whilst i didn't agree with everything i did enjoy listening to it and i commend you for narrating the whole thing over three days thanks peter it was nice to chat with you if if people want to find you want to find your book and they want to read it where where would they find it oh well yeah i mean just a google uh google the deficit myth and there's a website through the publisher uh, where we'll give you a variety of options. If you're someone who doesn't want to buy from Amazon, there are other ways to get it. Of course, you can always get it through Amazon. There's lots of ways to get the book. Well, thank you. And I wish you good luck. And uh, maybe we'll chat again at some point. Okay. Thanks very much. Take care. Okay. So what did you think of that? Did you enjoy that? What do you think of MMT? Is anybody listening to the show a fan of MMT? I'd love to hear from you. Tell me what you think. Look, I'm not, but I was glad to talk to Stephanie about it. It was good to hear the MMT argument. I do think it's full of holes. I think I put up some pretty strong arguments. I also think Stephanie gave some concessions, mainly around incentive structures. But we do, as I said in my intro, we do live in this world of central banks and governments. We do have this pandemic. We have lots of people out of work. The money printer is going to continue. So if it is, look, I want to understand the ideas behind MMT. Is the theory behind inflation, is it more nuanced than just money printing leads to inflation? Now, I'm obviously not an economist, but I have learned more about Austrian economics, and that definitely is a school of thought, which I think just makes more sense to me. It's a much fairer system. But it was great to have another perspective. So a massive thanks to Stephanie for coming on, throwing herself into the fire, because I'm sure some of you will be very critical of this. Um, If you are, please be respectful. She did give up her time for me to come on the show. 
Um, and also, if you've got any questions or feedback, you want to let me know what I got right, what I got wrong, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Got some interesting stuff on my other show, Defiance. I released a really interesting interview with Zubu this week. We talked about the hijacking of Black Lives Matters. And also next week, I've got a four-part series about the heavy metal band The Ghosted Side starred in. They were in a fatal road crash in 2015, lots of injuries, and they had a four-year recovery until they made their comeback gig in Los Angeles, which I went to, and I approached the band. I said, can I tell the story? And they've allowed me to. It's a fascinating story. That starts next week. You can find all of that on defiance.news. And as I said, if you want to reach out to me, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Okay, outside of that, it's really sunny here, so I'm going to go enjoy my weekend. I hope you all do, and I'll catch up with you next week. 